the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with the Jew, were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what then shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Why are you here? It's a very simple question, right? Why are you here? Why are you coming to church this morning in Pell City in the great state of Alabama? What do you hope to gain by being here? Now, if I were to open up the floor for answers to that question, we would all give a varied array of answers, I would assume. We would probably most likely start with our Sunday school answers, correct? Each of us would give the answer we thought would make us look the most good. This is where I come to meet my God so I can worship Jesus and so on. And these are right answers, right? They're the right answers. That's why we give them. They're the Sunday school answers. We know those are the answers people want to hear. They're the most right answers, but are they the most true about us? What if we were able to go a little deeper, be a little bit more honest? I'm here because I have to be. That's true. <laughs> I don't have a center. <laughs> That's right. Maybe we're here because we hope it'll cover all our bases. I just got to be here and I'll check off the list. Maybe we like the people around us. I, I come to see Jim Sparks. I like Jim Sparks. <laughs> Maybe some of us just come out of habit. All of us probably give a slightly different answer to this question. Why are we here? I think we probably see the answer best to this question when we don't actually come. What keeps you from coming? Work, leisure, laziness, antitrust of the establishment. We easily find things to complain about. We easily find things to keep us from where we need to be. But we have to be reminded that the church is something, isn't it? 
church, the beloved bride of Christ, the thing that he instituted, good, bad, or indifferent, the church is a central part of our Christian walk. It's part of who we are. But we ask ourselves, why do we come here? As we come to our text today, it's somewhat confusing. One commentator actually called this the most challenging bit of text in all of Romans. That should be comforting as we come to it today. Paul here rapidly fires questions and he rapidly gives answers to these questions. And as we look at it, we have to say, well, what's going on here? What's Paul getting at? What's his point? The Jews, excuse me, as we saw the last time I was here, claim to have a special privilege before God. Paul affirms this. He'll even affirm this in our text today. But they insist that this special relationship excludes them from judgment. So Paul, in essence, asked them the same question I have asked you. Why are you here? He asked it a little different way. Maybe he would say, why are you a Jew? Why do you go to temple? Why do you sacrifice animals? What are you doing? As we come to our text today, as we begin to consider it, This question, uh, we'll see three things. We're going to see the word and law. We're going to see the righteousness of God. And then we're going to finally, we're going to see the abounding truth. Paul begins here by saying, what then? In our text says, then what? This is a connector to what we've just seen. They've claimed in in the end of verse, or excuse me, end of chapter two, they have special privilege. And Paul said, no. Your uncircumcision is nothing. It's about your heart. And so he says, now what? He's going to raise a question. He wants to further his argument. Paul's been teaching about both salvation and judgment. He's been saying to them, hey, look, external things aren't going to save you from judgment. External things aren't going to justify you. Now what? What advantage has the Jew? Now, in asking this question, Paul is not denying that the Jew has some advantage. In fact, he will say that the Jew does have some advantage. He is rejecting the notion that they can escape judgment because of their advantage. But what is their advantage? Well, he goes on to say this. What advantage the Jew or what value of circumcision? He says much in every way. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean they had? The oracles of God. This is the word of God. The promises, the Old Testament, all that were given. He said, you've been given the very word of God. And that is of great advantage, isn't it? To possess the actual, real, tangible word of God. That's a great advantage. You see it before us, right? I'll just leave that there for a little while. It's a great advantage to have the word of God. And he does not even reject the idea that law is 
terribly bad. If you can do the law perfectly, then good. If you can do the law, every last little letter of the law, then great. God has come and has entered into special relationship with Israel like he did no other nation. Does this have any meaning for them? We know the history of Israel, don't we? The history of Israel was a tumultuous one. God entered relationship to them, and then what did they do? Now, we could use the great refrain from judges. They did what was right in their own eyes over and over again. They worshiped the Baals and the other idols. They turned from their God. They rebelled over and over again. They were sent into exile. The temple was destroyed, had to be rebuilt. It's a very tumultuous history. And Paul says, you have been unfaithful. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? This question is somewhat supercilious, isn't it? What if some were unfaithful? He knows and they know their history. They know that there have been some who were unfaithful. The nation has been unfaithful. But guess what? This does not remove the faithfulness of God. God has given them his word. He has given the promise of blessings if they obey his law and the promise of curses if they would fail. And Israel, as Paul has intimated in this question, what if some were unfaithful, excuse me, has failed to meet their covenant obligations. They rejected the Old Testament promises. They rejected Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. They have indeed been unfaithful. But even so... God has remained faithful. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul answers in the most negative way possible. By no means, it says in the ESV. I love. I think it's the ASV or American Standard Version or something says, may it never be, I love that translation of it, may it never be true. God is always true. And this is not so much about his being truthfulness and not being a liar. Yes, it says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. But it's about his character. He is always reliable, always trustworthy to his word. He has promised blessing. He has promised judgment. God is true when all else are liars. And Paul here goes on to quote Psalms 51.4. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Does anybody know what Psalm 51 is? Psalm 51, the great Psalm of David, after being confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murder. His lying over and over again. And Nathan comes to him and gives him this 
hypothetical story. Hey, there's this guy and he killed this guy's wife and took his wife for himself. And David's like, this is outrageous. Let's go get this guy. And Nathan says, hey, it's you. And David goes, oh, oh, no. And David laments this and he says, he declares that in God's judgment, even then he is justified. God is just when he judges. He is always faithful, even when passing judgment, even when proclaiming uh, judgment, he is truthful. He's continually faithful in all that he does. There are always going to be those who enter into their walk with a a works-based faith. It's tempting here, even as we go through this, to say, you silly Jews. You're, You're being silly. You have the word and you didn't see it. How many of you have a Bible sitting near you right now? You, like them, have the very word of God. They hope that the things they do are going to be enough to make them right. And we can fall into that same temptation. If I just do enough good things, I'm going to be okay. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? That's what we're called. If we think we do that, we're okay. And so our life, our Christian walk becomes about do's and don'ts. <coughs> can't have, you can't get earrings all through your ears. You can't get tattoos, right? That's not right. We have to walk the straight and narrow. We hope to be made right with God through our actions. Paul comes to us and says, guess what? You can never do enough right things. You'll never, ever, ever do enough to earn salvation with God. You cannot. (coughs) He basically says to you, church, this. Have you been baptized? Are you a member of a church? Do you go to church? Are you an elder? Are you a deacon? So what? What? None of that matters. None of that is going to help you get into heaven. Your status is nothing. If you're relying on the status alone. Now, yes, I want you to join churches. I think it's good. Yes, I want you to be baptized. It's good, but it's not the thing that saves us. If we continue in our sin, if we glorify in our sin then we will be judged. The righteousness of God is an unshakable truth. And Paul continues this by asking, what if if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? What shall we say then? It's really a funny question, right? One of the things about having children, which I'm sure that you have, is when, and I did this as a kid too. When you get in trouble, what do you start to do? I, I could probably talk my way out of this. Right? 
I, I can talk my way out of this and it'll all be okay. And this is what they're doing here, right? They, they're going, okay, Paul, you got us. But what if this, what if our unrighteousness just brings righteousness all the more to God? Isn't that a good thing? So it's win-win. That's what he's saying here. They ask, what if our unrighteousness serves us so righteousness of God? God can't, can't punish us if our actions give him righteousness. That would be silly. So we'll do what we're doing, and, and yeah, we're unrighteous, but, well, look, God, it's more righteous now. Right? That, that's good. No. No. He, he even says they're saying, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? They're going even as far as saying, hey, hey, we're doing you a service, God. We're showing your righteousness. You can't judge us now. That's not fair. Hmm. Right? What if our unrighteousness reveals the righteousness of God? Then we'll be okay. No. Paul uses that phrase again, by no means, may it never be. God is always faithful and just. He will always act according to his nature. He will always be proven righteous and unrighteousness is never excusable. When we sin, God is just to bring judgment. He is not unrighteous for bring that judgment. I think Paul here in a way maybe felt a little bit uncomfortable about even insinuating that God might be unjust. And so he said, I'm speaking in human terms. Don't get me wrong. I'm trying to appeal to your sense of reason. God, of course, is not ever unjust. If God is unjust in his judgment, how will the world ever be judged? He is the only one who is ever wholly perfect. Through his actions, he always shows himself righteous at all times. He is unquestionably right in his judgment. Paul is revealing to them the nature and the character of God. God is righteous and true, and the world hates it. God is righteous and true. And the church hates it. Don't we? Because God comes in and he says, I need you to live your life a certain way. Do your actions save you? No. I have saved you. And now that I have saved you, I expect you to live a certain way before me. God's righteousness and truthfulness is unchanging. It will never change. And because of that, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. There is nothing we can do. And Jesus is, or excuse me, Paul here is laying the nation of Israel bare. There's nothing you can do. 
There's not enough sacrifices you can do. There's not enough ritual cleanings that you can do. There's not enough feast that you can do. There's not enough prayers that you can do. You need the promised Messiah and you have rejected him. And so now your nationality, your national badge is of nothing. The world continually will attack the nature and the character of God and they will seek to undermine it for the very reason that they detest his judgment. Well, how can a loving God do this? Right? Have you ever heard that? How can a loving God do this? This is a, You're just a crazy people. And they attack the nature and the character of God because they don't like the judgment that comes from his nature and character. If God is who he says he is, then he's calling us to account for the way we live. And who wants that? Who wants rules? Do you like rules? I'm going to tell my sister, my sister, my, my kids a, a secret. I don't like rules either. Nobody likes rules. We don't like to have to do certain, certain things at a certain time. Nobody likes rules. We want to live for self because we're selfish. But we need Jesus. We cannot continue to live however we want to live. But the Jews and their reasoning will not be outdone. They're going to take it one step further. Hey, look, Paul, Paul, this is all well and good. But if through a lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? What if this, Paul, what if I do evil, that good will come? Now, that's, that's pretty audacious, isn't it? They're actually saying, hey, it's not just that, okay, I happen to be unrighteous and God's righteousness is revealed, so we're okay. No, it's not just that. Let's do bad things. No, let's do evil things so that God's goodness can be seen. Oh, if we go on that line of thinking, what can we justify? What can we rationalize? If I steal from my company, it doesn't matter. My evil shows the goodness of God. If I cheat on my taxes, it doesn't matter because my evil shows the goodness of God. If I cheat on my spouse, it doesn't matter because my evil shows the goodness of God. And so we start to rationalize our sin and say, it's okay. God will be glorified in this evil act. It is the ultimate conclusion of this argument. It's a similar argument that Paul will make later in Romans 6. Shouldn't we continue sinning that grace may abound? There it's talking about grace and the abundant grace of God. But here he's talking about something different. They want their status to save them, to be enough for them. 
Paul rejects this. God is just. Even in the judgment of sinners, even when those sins may bring him glory, God's judgment will come to all who reject the gospel. Paul is warning them not to draw wrong conclusions. The law cannot save you. Your status as a nation cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. God will always be faithful to his people, not to a nation, but his remnant. So I ask you, why are you here? Why are you here today? We as Christians are just and can be just as guilty upon presuming upon the grace and mercy of God. We think we don't have to worry about our sins. We forget God's ultimate concern is his own glory and not our blessing. So we're the church. So what? Are we relying on our own works? Are we relying on our own efforts to get us into heaven? Only God is righteous. Only God is truth, is is trustworthy in all things. His truth will go forth no matter what we do. He does not need us. The reality is this. We don't come to church for God. We don't come to church for God. He does not need us. We come to church because we need God. We come to church because we need him. Because this is the thing he has given us as his institution. His body, his bride on this earth. We don't come to church and say, look what I can do for them. Look what I can do for him. Look at all my many skills and all my many talents. We don't come to church and say, well, I've checked that off the list. I've joined. I've been baptized. I can count myself now as righteous and okay and do whatever else I want to do. God's righteousness is unshakable. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in? What is our faith in? Is it in self? is Is it in what we do? Do we come here with an arrogance and a pridefulness? Do we go from this place and, that was all right. There's some things I would change would make me feel better about it if I went there and I could do this and they could do that. We've missed the point of church, haven't we? We've missed the point of being the nation of Israel, as it were, as being the people of God. That's who you are. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are the people of God. You are his chosen Seed, his remnant, the ones he loves, keeps, and protects. 
I think sometimes we fail to have a proper appreciation for the church. Do you come to church and say, I have more in common with the people there than I have with my unbelieving family? We are adopted as sons and daughters. You know what that makes us? Brothers and sisters. Church is not just something. Israel, they looked at what they did as their religion or whatever you want to call it, and they looked at it as their past. The church is not our past. When Christ comes again, he will be wholly justified and right in bringing judgment upon all who are not his. So I leave you with this. Why are you here? Dwell on that question. Think about that question. What answers do you in your true and honest self come to? My hope and my prayer for each of us is that we come and say, I am here because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because I need it desperately. And he has provided his church as the means and a place where I come and I am confronted with Jesus Christ, where I have brothers and sisters who come alongside me and pick me up and say, I'm a sinner too. And isn't it great that we have Jesus and that he has covered our sins and we build each other up. Would we not rationalize away our sin? Would we not seek to justify our sinfulness? But would we come together in faithfulness, relying upon Jesus in all that we do? Let's pray. Dear gracious heavenly father, we are so thankful for your word and we're so thankful for this warning. Would we not allow the church to become something that we merely do? That we just come and we feel good about ourselves, but would you, we come here each and every week and would we meet you resting and trusting in you for all the, who we are? Would our identity be that which is wrought in the person and work of Jesus Christ? We pray in his holy name. Amen.